You know, one of the most popular movies of the 1980s was Back to the Future. You may remember it. Michael J. Fox starred as, as a teenager named Marty McFly who was transported back to the 1950s with the help of a zany scientist, a DeLorean sports car with a flux capacitor. In the, in the movie, Marty ends up in the same high school, as Chance would have it, as the teenage version of his mom and dad. And all sorts of things begin to happen then. His mom, much to his horror, now has a crush on him. His, uh, his, the, he becomes the focus of the school bully who is his 1980s dad's boss. He, he introduces rock and roll to a kind of stunned high school dance crowd. And he encourages and helps his dad take a stand up for himself. Now, because he does all of these things and more, his world and his future is radically altered. Today, we're beginning a new sermon series called Back to the Future, which looks back. We look back to the past to find truths that point us to the future we have in Jesus Christ. We're going back to the time before Christ came to earth as a man, back to the Old Testament, back to look for evidence of God and his plan of redemption in the Old Testament to see how God's involvement there points to a radically different future for us and for all humankind. We'll be looking at new, or excuse me, Old Testament stories and passages that point us to the future, the time when Christ came to earth and put into place a new covenant, a, a new way of coming to God the Father, relating to God the Father through faith in him and finding grace and salvation and forgiveness and hope. Before we look at the passage that was just read a second ago and look back to the future, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for your love and your mercy, and we thank you for your presence in our lives. God, we pray simply that your spirit would be at work in our midst, that you would draw us deeper into your truth, that you would strengthen our will and resolve to live for you, that you would um, just help us, Father, uh, to be soft and responsive to your truth today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the most important questions, perhaps the most important question in regard to our Christian faith, is this. Is God good? Does God have my, my best interest at heart? Can I trust God? You know, the answer to that question, to those questions, if we really think about it, determines the shape and direction of our faith. It shapes how we relate to the God who created our universe. If the answer is no, that God is not good, that God does not have our best interest at heart, that God is not trustworthy, if the answer is no, then what is the point of, of following him in the first place? However, if the answer is yes, that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God does have our best interests at heart, if the answer is yes, then there should be absolutely nothing that we wouldn't do for him, absolutely nowhere that we won't go for him, and absolutely no sacrifice that is too great that we wouldn't offer it to him. The story of Abraham and Isaac here in Genesis 22 is a, is a challenging story on many levels. This is a story where you wonder, understandably, is God good? You know, I read these words from this story not so much as a, as a pastor, but as, as a father. Verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. 
Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, now what a strange story. Can you imagine being Abraham on the road to Moriah, which, by the way, Moriah is now present-day Jerusalem, the place where Jesus the Son was offered as a sacrifice by God the Father. But anyway, can you imagine being Abraham on the way to Moriah? You know, Abraham is about to lose what is most important to him in the world. And like that's not enough, he's about to lose it at the command of a God that he's been trying to please and trying to follow. I mean, what do you do if you're in his shoes? What do you do when you're walking kind of in the dark, trying to follow God, not sure why he's asking you to do something, and your heart is ripped out, and God seems to be silent and distant and detached? What do you do? You know, it's interesting. The first thing the writer of this story does is to assure us that Isaac is never in any real danger in the story. He starts with these words. After these things, God tested Abraham. In the words of the public broadcasting system, this is only a test. Now, testing is a word that's used in the Old Testament only of dealings with God and his people. It's never used about people who are strangers to God. God does not test non-believers. Now, he will allow things into their lives at times to get their attention, to draw them to him, but he only tests those who believe. Now, the idea of testing here is kind of like when you go to school and you, you have to learn things. You learn things when you have tests that you wouldn't learn otherwise. And the writer wants us to have that perspective on the story. We know as the readers of the story, we know how it's going to turn out. We know that it's only a test, but Abraham, Abraham does not know that it's only a test. A good thing to remember sometimes in our lives when we're in the middle of something. Now back to the story. God says, Abraham, and Abraham knows this voice. It's the same voice that called him to leave everything was familiar, his home, and go to a distant land. It's the same voice that told him in this ancient world that there is a God, and I'm this God, and you can be a friend of this God, of me. And Abraham became a friend of God. It's the same voice that told him, you and your wife will have a son in your very, very old age. And they did. And now the same voice... The same voice comes to him once more, the last time, as far as we know. And this voice comes to him and asks Abraham to give up everything in his life for the sake of a promise. Ask him to give up the promise. Ask him to give up his son, Isaac. And Abraham's response is, here I am. I'm yours. And then the voice speaks again. Abraham, take your son, your only son. Now, of course, we know that, that Isaac was not the only son. Abraham had another son, Ishmael, by another woman. But this was the only son that carried the promise of God. Remember how that promise started? Back in, in Genesis 12, God spoke to Abraham and told him that God would make Abraham the father of, of many, many nations. And yet, after many, many years, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, still have no kids. And then when they're very, very old, past the childbearing age, God tells Sarah and Abraham that they were going to have a baby boy. And Sarah gets pregnant. This child, God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, the child of the promise, take this son and go and sacrifice him. 
Now, by the way, Isaac, many of you might know, means laughter. And it's fitting because Abraham and Sarah laughed at first when they were told that they were going to have a son as, as upper-aged upper, upper senior citizens. And then it happened, and I'm sure during the course of their life, they laughed at the sheer possibility of a woman her age giving birth. Reminds me of the birth of one of our sons. Nancy, just to clarify, was nowhere close to Sarah's age. But, but when we got to the hospital, there was a crowd of very curious nurses gathered around waiting for us. You see, they pulled the, the file of another Nancy McHenry who was 62 years old. <laughs> and, and we all had a good laugh about it. Abraham and Sarah, I'm, I'm sure, laughed at the birth of Isaac. To put it in our kind of terms, they laughed at the very idea of a child being born in the geriatric ward for whom Medicare would pick up the tab. They laughed at how when Sarah went to Dylan's, she was the only person with the pens and pampers in the same cart. They laughed at how both parents and baby had to eat the same strange vegetables all mashed up because nobody had any teeth. Take your son, God says, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And so Abraham cuts the wood, he gathers two servants, and he takes his son, his only son, the promised Isaac, and they set out for Moriah. And then the scripture tells us, on the third day, Abraham looked up, and he saw the place in the distance. So in other words, this agony, he's been told, he says, take his son, the child of the promise, take him to Moriah and sacrifice him. And so he's been, he's been traveling for three days, carrying this burden. And we want to cry out to Abraham as we read the story. Hey, it's okay. We know how it turns out. Don't be afraid. God is not that kind of God. He's not going to make you do this. But again, in the midst of trials and tests, we don't always have that luxury. We don't have somebody to tell us how it's going to turn out. Life does not work that way. We can only go one chapter at a time. And when we're in the middle of our story, nobody's allowed to see the end. We will walk, the scripture tells us. If we walk at all, we will walk by faith. Back to the story. Abraham sees the place of Moriah, and he says to his servants, verse 5, Stay here with the donkey while I, and the bo- while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will return to you. And it's curious in that he says, we will return. Is that a statement of faith? Uh, does he want to mislead the servants into what he's going to do? Does he want to hide it from them? We, we don't know. The writer never tells us in the story what's in Abraham's mind. Although we do hear later in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that by faith that God would bring his son back from the dead. So Abraham in his mind was going to have to go through with it. He was trusting that God would bring him back from the dead. Anyhow, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. You know, it's kind of touching. Abraham takes the dangerous objects that a young boy could hurt himself with, a knife, a sharp knife, and a fire. And he places the, the wood on his son's back, the wood that he will be killed on just like Jesus Christ carried the cross upon which he died. And then it's just the two of them. The two uh, servants have been left behind. And, and for the second time in the story, Abraham is called, but this time it's by Isaac, verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? And there's a question in his voice. And Abraham says, Here I am, here I am, my son. And Isaac is obviously old enough to notice that Something's not quite 
right here. It doesn't feel right to him. His dad had said, we're going to offer a burnt sacrifice, but there's no animal anywhere in sight. His father, is, who's always been so talkative, is strangely silent and not saying much. His father, who loves him. And so Isaac asks, the fire's here, the wood's here, but where's the lamb for the burnt, burnt offering? And again, Abraham gives an ambiguous answer. Whether it's doubtful, hopeful, fearful, we don't know. Verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And we're told for a second time the two of them walk alone together. And even though Abraham was walking with his son, he must have felt very, very alone. Verses 9 and 10. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And for a third time, Abraham hears a voice. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And for a third time, Abraham responds, here I am. And God says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. The test ends and Abraham passes. <clears throat> you know, one of the many ironies about this story is in our day, modern people will read this and probably you have read it and felt this way. This is kind of barbaric. Why would God ask anybody, Abraham, anybody, to do something like this? Why is this story in the Bible? But you have to understand that Abraham lived in a world where human sacrifice was practiced routinely. In his world, that's what they thought the gods wanted them to do, to, to, to appease their anger, to please them. There was no Israel at this point. There was no Torah, no law. There were no sacred scriptures to really tell them about who God was and what he wanted. And so God is beginning to introduce himself through Abraham to the human race. And part of the whole point of this story is, is that this practice must be stopped, this way of relating to God through, through human sacrifice and, and through striving. Part of the whole point, the, the, the main point, though, is that God loves Isaac just as much as he loves Abraham, just as much as he loves the whole earth, just as he loves as much as he loves you and loves me. And, and the story changed the world, and the world began to understand the heart of God. That there is a God who has made another way. A God who will provide a sacrifice to set things right between himself and this broken world and our sins. And so God reveals himself more to Abraham and provides a ram in the thicket. And Abraham understands a little bit more. And Isaac is spared. And Abraham shows that he understands God more when it says, So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Now, what even Abraham did not know is that the son who would one day be sacrificed would be God's own son, Jesus. And that the lamb that one way would be provided as a sacrifice would be Jesus, the lamb of God. And that the father's heart that would one day be broken would be God's very own heart. And that the suffering that would be the greatest the world would ever see would be God's own suffering as he watched his son die on a cross. And for Jesus, too, walked to the place of sacrifice carrying on his own back the wood on which he was be to be put to death. And Jesus, just like Isaac cried out to his father, Father, Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And when Jesus was bound, no voice cried out to stay the ropes. And when a blade went to pierce his body, no power held it back. This time, with Jesus, no other sacrifice was provided. This time the son died. This time the father grieved. The father gave his son, his only son, Jesus, whom he loved. You know, somehow in the suffering of God comes the healing of the world. I mean, where else do people go, broken people go, needy people go, like us, when a little advice, a little positive mental readjustment, a little human fix-it-up is not enough? We go to the cross. We go to the cross where we find hope and healing and redemption and God's grace and mercy and love poured out because of what Christ has done for us. At the cross, God says, God says, I will provide what you need. I will do what you cannot do for yourselves. I will make a way and I will give my son to be put in your place. In just a moment, we'll be coming to the, the Lord's table to celebrate communion. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of God's love and the sacrifice of the son. And to kind of help kind of pull it together and illustrate and give you a sense of what this means in our, in our parlance, our world, I'd like to tell a story that was written by John Ortberg, a pastor in California. Ortberg writes, My family was down at Azusa because one of our kids graduated from Azusa Pacific University. My wife, Nancy, was speaking at the commencement ceremonies. So she and I were in a room with about 50 people in it that were people from the graduating class of 50 years ago with a few other faculty. President John Wallace of the university brought out three students who were graduating and told us how they were going to serve in under-resourced areas, the poorest of poor over the next two years in India. He goes on. They thought that they were just there to be commissioned and kind of sent out and prayed for, and they were. But then something happened that they did not know was coming. President Wallace turned to them and said, Now I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, so moved by what you're doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. Then the president turned to the first student. The kid had no idea what was coming. And he said, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kid began to sob. He turned to the next student. You are forgiven your debt of $70,000. And the last student, you are forgiven your debt of $130,000. Orberg concludes, they were ambushed by grace. That somebody they didn't even know would pay a debt. The whole room, I mean everybody in the room, he concludes, was in tears. You know, at the table, God calls out to us to come to him. And he says, even though your debt can never fully be repaid, even though your sin creates a chasm between me and you, somebody has given a gift. Somebody has provided a way I have provided a way. I've given my son, my only son, to be the sacrifice on your part. God calls us to come to him. And as he does so, he asks us to answer the question that we've begun with. Because it's a place of all faith. Do you believe that I am good? Do you believe that I am trustworthy? Do you believe that I have your best interests at heart? The answer we can find when we look at the cross? The answer is yes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you for the son 
that you have provided in our place. We thank you that you did not count your own pain in the the equation, but you willingly let your son, Jesus Christ, go to a cross and die for us as the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb. You have provided a way for us when there was no other way. And we thank you for that. Lord, now as we come to the table, we pray that you would draw us closer to you, that you would affirm in our hearts and minds, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, regardless of the feelings that we have, that you are good, that you have our best interests at heart, that we can trust you and that you love us. So, Father, we come now and we ask as the bread is broken and we take of the elements that you would open our eyes to your presence. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.